0: Welcome. Welcome to Talking Through the Numbers, a podcast produced by Wilder Research. Our goal? To provide insight on significant issues, combining sound information with expert knowledge to enrich our understanding of things that affect our communities and our world. I'm Paul Matesik, Executive Director of Wilder Research. In this episode, our topic is the 2020 census, with special focus on the people and populations that are historically undercounted and why. Three experts have come to the studio for this conversation. Wayne Ducheneau is executive director of the Native Governance Center, a Native American led nonprofit organization in St. Paul, Minnesota that assists tribal nations in strengthening their governance systems and capacity to exercise sovereignty. He's a Cohort 3 Native Nation Rebuilder and an enrolled citizen of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. His previous work includes serving as Tribal Administrative Officer, District 4 Council Representative, and Vice Chairman of the Tribe from 2012 to 2014.
1: Welcome, Wayne. Thanks, Paul. Wayne I said there, uh, hello, my relatives. I greet you all with a good heart and a handshake. My name is Wayne Ducheneau, and it's truly an honor to be with you all today.
0: Susan Brower is the Minnesota State Demographer and directs the Minnesota State Demographic Center. Her work applies an understanding of demographic trends to changes in a range of areas, including the state's economy and workforce, education, health, immigration, and rural population changes. She previously worked on Minnesota Compass as a researcher and at the Population Studies Center at the University of Michigan. Susan, welcome.
2: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Jacob Wascalis is a research scientist at Wilder Research and works on Minnesota Compass, a social indicators project led by Wilder Research that measures progress and tracks trends in topic areas such as education, economy, workforce, health, housing, and others. He previously worked at the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, the Center for Urban and Regional Affairs, and the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy.
3: Welcome, Jacob. Thanks for uh, having me. I'm really happy to be here. Well, thanks
0: again to the three of you, uh, and thanks for bringing your expertise to discuss the census. The census. What exactly is the census and how does it work? Can you explain that, Susan?
2: Sure. So the census is a count of every single living, breathing human being in the U.S. It happens every 10 years and it is an enormous operation. Um, the way that most people... How many? Yeah. When you
0: say enormous, how many people are counted in the U.S., roughly speaking?
2: There's, there'll be about 330 million, little over 330 million in the U.S. And, you know, that's a lot of people. But if you also think about all the different ways that people live, all their different kinds of circumstances, whether they're in an institution or a group home or an apartment or, um, you know, in a mobile home, there's just all kinds of different... Um, special operations to reach people where they are. Um, the first way that people will kind of hear about the census, if you're just a regular person, not a kind of a census nerd, like maybe some of us here today are, <laughs> um, is that you'll get a letter in the mail in mid-March uh, that will invite... Most people will get a letter that will invite them to go online to fill so out the census. So somebody
0: doesn't come to your house, a census taker? Not that, right away. Oh, okay. For
2: most people. Okay. There are a few... Uh, a few areas in Minnesota where a census taker will come to your home, and that is mostly in tribal areas where that's kind of the preferred method uh, that the tribes have chosen. Uh, But for the vast majority of Minnesotans, the way that they will first hear about the census is a letter in the mailbox inviting them to go online and to fill out the census online.
0: And so is the hope that most people would take it Via the internet, online.
2: That's the hope. They're pushing as many people, they being the Census Bureau, is pushing as many people to go online as possible because it it reduces costs. So that's one of the measures they're really pushing.
0: And it actually starts in Alaska in January. And how long do they keep following up after April to make sure that uh, people all around the country have participated?
2: It'll go into the summer. We don't have an exact date where they will call it off, but they're saying well into the summer they'll have census takers out knocking on doors, following up with people who haven't responded.
0: Hmm. And when are the data reported?
2: The first data that we get coming out of the census will be in December of 2020, December of this year, and we'll just get the high-level number, the state-level totals, which will tell us whether or not we keep... All, all eight of our congressional districts
0: ah, so that that starts to get into another question I know that people would have what why is the census important what what does it do for us
2: it's used for so many things I mean one of the the very first purpose it had and the reason why it's in the Constitution is because it's used to distribute political power. Um, that's how we determine how many seats in the U.S. House of Representatives we get. And right now, Minnesota has eight. Uh, we'll see how many we have after the next census. It's also used kind of all the way down from the federal level to the the local levels in terms of um, redistricting.
1: Uh, leading up to this year, Susan, is there a thought as to where Minnesota is going to land there? And are we are we looking at keeping the same amount of seats, gaining a seat, losing a seat?
2: Yeah, it is so close. It is so close. So in 2010, we kept we got the very last seat that there was to hand out there, 435 seats. Minnesota got that very last one and we kept it only by about 8000 people, which is just a very, very thin margin for a state our size. Um, and looking at projections, we're right back in that same position again—that we're we're just on the edge, and it's really, from my perspective, too close to call at this point.
0: Wayne, why why should tribal nations care about the census? What what uh, how do they use it? What
1: I think the the most intimate way that tribal nations use the census work really has to do a lot with funding that's obligated to them through from the federal government for from the federal government's trust responsibility, and so. Oftentimes, depending on what type of source the funding is coming from, whether it's HHS funding that leads down to the IHS for healthcare funding, Department of Transportation money that goes in comes into roads and for maintenance and infrastructure needs. Um, oftentimes, census data is used as a part of formulas for formulaic funding that really helps redistribute do, and to distribute the money down the line so that uh, tribal nations, uh, you know, they understand more and more that. If we have this accurate data, that's the, like the first and the, the closest that most people know. The other thing I think is it's really about tribal nations returning to their, their indigenous roots, about having that strategic orientation and thinking wholly about their tribal nations and what's best for them. And so it's a big part of this new data sovereignty movement that's pushing an in Indian country. And it's about how do Data tra- sovereignty. Data so. sovereignty. And that's about how do we gather information uh, through research? How do we house that information so that we are the owner and— um, purveyor of it, and then how do we use it in evaluation or other methodologies to make sure that we are using it to leverage it for the best for our tribulations. That
0: sounds like a topic for another podcast. Maybe. I, uh, that, that in and of itself would be fascinating.
1: Please have me back
0: anytime. <laughs> okay. Other reasons why the census is important or who who else uses this information? What, what difference does it make for them?
3: Well, I'll, I'll get a little bit more um, specific with funding. Um, there are about 300 federal programs that use um data derived from the census to distribute and allocate money from the federal government to states about 600 billion dollars every year i believe um and minnesota gets around 15 billion um it might sound kind of crude but um we all sort of have a dollar figure attached to us (laughs) um $28,000 $28,000 per person over a decade, roughly. So we want to make sure that in Minnesota, all 5.6, 5.5 million of us are counted. So um, the adequate amount of funds come from the federal government to the state.
0: Who can, who can access the census data? Anybody?
2: Well, it depends if you're talking about at the individual level, at the level of, you know, where you can see an individual person's name and um, age, That's that stuff, that level of data is protected for 72 years after the census. So right now... The only individual level data that we have out of a census is from the 1940 census. That's the most recent. Um, But the census data become public at the aggregate level, at the level of a neighborhood, at the level of cities and townships and and counties, so that people can use it for their own purposes. So governments can use them, nonprofits.
1: Businesses. I think it's really important to highlight, especially when we're talking about Indian country, that... um, that, that to hammer home that point that the census data is private, that no one's going to be able to attribute exactly the number to the specific house, the census protects that information very much. And so, you know, that's one of the, the and I can I'll get a little bit more into this later, but when it comes to the some of the general misunderstandings that cause the mistrust in Indian country around the census, very much it has to do with, can people know exactly how many people are living in my home? Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um,
0: obviously, it's important. We hear about undercounts of certain groups or certain communities. Can you say something about why this happens, how it happens, how can we prevent
1: it from happening? I, I would uh, to pick up right where I left <laughs> Any off. Any or all of us okay, can yeah, chime yeah. in. Now. So, um, you know, specifically in Indian country, I have a really good anecdotal story about you know, witnessing the undercount first half. So when, back in 2010, I was running our tribal motel, our tribal enterprise for Cheyenne River in South Dakota and had census numerators there. And, um, you know, got to learn a lot about the process, visiting with the folks from the census that stayed with us. And so, uh, the next thing I, the next job I got, I was the administrative officer for our tribe. So I ran our tribal administration and really got to be way more familiar with, you know, how it impacts all of the things for our tribe and whatnot. But, um, a big reason for the undercount in Indian country is it's mistrust and misinformation. So that's why proper education and mobilization is going to be such a big trend in Indian country this year. Um, you have a lot of tribes in our in in the region that Native Governance Center serves, as Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota, um, indigenizing these things, making sure that their tribal members are the ones going out and doing the counting when it comes to the numerator part. Um, but and so so it's this mistrust that causes the undercounting. And so because, for instance, some of our housing on the reservation is federally funded. And, you know, if you have a house that's only two bedroom, sometimes the laws mandate you can only have X number of people. And so um, our traditionally our families are multigenerational. We weren't, you know, uh, one solid family, mom, dad and kids. We used to live traditionally. Grandpa and Grandma were in, you know, multiple families in one home, and so as we've brought that with us into the future, it really has a conflict then with the certain housing codes that exist out there facing Indian Country. Um, the, the most shocking thing for me was in the in the 2010 census, if you looked at the two counties in South Dakota, Ziebach and Dewey County, the total census population was roughly 8,212 people, and by our tribe's own account. For our state tax agreement, we said we had 80% of the population on the reservation. That meant there was only 6,000 Indian people, according to that statistical uh, derivative, uh, 6,000 tribal members on our reservation. At the time, we had an enrollment of roughly 18,000, and we knew it was way closer to 60% of our tribal members on reservation. And so uh, how did we figure that out? Well, we actually had a per capita payment distributed from a trust fund settlement and we were able to, in that per capita application, build in census-type questions because everyone who, wanted, who was a tribal member wanted, a, wanted their per capita payment. So in that one flashpoint in time, we were able to know exactly where all our people were. And it really showed that we were closer. I think we were like 58% um, of our total population on the reservation as that information was, uh, was pulled out of the – and so it just shows, like, that's a huge swing in the total amount of the population. Sure, mm-hmm. and a, a
0: mm-hmm. check on the reliability of the data. Uh, Susan? Yeah. Uh, Other reasons for the undercount besides what Wayne mentioned? Absolutely.
2: So I think what Wayne mentioned absolutely is uh, a concern for the native community, but also for many immigrant communities have those same fears. Uh, Even communities who have been here for generations, of course, like like indigenous people, um, fear is one kind of barrier. There are other kinds of barriers too. So if we think about groups that are likely to be missed, one group is renters. Um, Many times renters will have some of those same fears because they have some of the same characteristics that Wayne was just talking about or the same kind of perceptions. and experiences, but also they live behind two sets of locked doors. <laughs> so when an enumerator comes around, it's harder to do that follow-up. So in some cases, it's just an as- an issue of physical access. Um, another group that tends to get missed, or that was, was the biggest uh, undercount in the last census, was young children under the age of five. Uh, The Census Bureau did some research to find out why that was happening. And they found that for the children who were missed and the babies who were missed, most of them lived in households where a form was filled out and they just weren't on that form. Uh, So the question is, um, you know, what is causing (laughs) what is causing uh, people to be left off the form?
1: I have a And what a per- is? Oh <laughs> Go do ahead, you know? Wayne,
2: and I have some ideas. Why well, I, I like I literally have yeah. a personal question. Yeah. So I
1: actually have a a, a son due April twenty first. Congratulations. Thank you. So so do I wait so that we can get the most accurate count to the census to add my son? Or do I go ahead and answer it on April first and
2: it's, it's uh, for April 1st. It'll be as of April 1st. So um, I hope that your son is carried full term to his due date. <laughs> but uh, April 1st is the date that it's scaled to. Yeah. Thank
3: you. I'll just say in Minnesota, we want that uh, we want to retain the congressional seat. So, <laughs> so you should just wait for the enumerator to come around
2: and, <laughs> and ask you the
3: question. Fair enough.
2: Um, so another reason with the young children that um, people tend to miss them is in in households that are complex or extended, Wayne was was describing this, sometimes people don't know that they should put everyone on the form. Even if they're there just for a month or two, that it's not a permanent living situation for the foreseeable future, that's how people get left off, is when they're in kind of transition maybe between households and they're in living with grandma or they're living with their aunt or something. Those, those young children tend to tend to get left off.
0: Sure, and I guess the idea is there's always a certain number of people in transition, so you catch people where they are, and even if they move, somebody else is moving in and out, so yeah. it's, a, it's a way to really get the best count, the best, most accurate count. Wayne, you said a lot about Native Americans and hmm. some of the reasons uh, why they are undercounted. Um, and you've mentioned a bit about how Native American communities use census data. Are there other ways that census data are used or that uh, you've used them in uh, program planning, policy applications, funding?
1: All, all those things and more, right? So, um, again, like I said, there's been a tremendous growth throughout Indian country in uh, tribe sophistication in and around data and how to use it. And so you're seeing tribes more and more really attune themselves to the fact that we have to be able to gather this information. We have to be able to make it work for, you know, grant applications we send off. Also for some of our own strategic planning. More and more of our tribes are developing 25, 50, 157 generation strategic plans on where their nations are going. A great example of that is um the Rosebud Sioux tribe in South Dakota is developing their call it their seven generation strategic plan. 150 years they're planning out so, and they've 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 gone as far as to find a statistician to help them look at. Okay, there are currently, I think it's twenty eight thousand enrolled members of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe, based on current population trends. What does that mean? One hundred fifty years, and they've they've come up to a number. In one hundred fifty years, there's going to be five hundred thousand people are enrolled members of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. How do we start planning now for that, for that exponential growth so that we can make, they can make sure as a tribal nation that they have everything they need to provide for their basic need for their people, to make sure they're ensuring a good life for their people. Um, so again, tribes are learning more and more that these numbers matter and we have to find a good way to be able to use them. Do you have any examples, Susan or
0: Wayne or Jacob of other uses of the census, how it's influenced uh, discussion about a policy or helped anything any any group from a neighborhood organization up to a large national organization to make a better decision or develop a better plan?
2: I want to talk about the Minnesota Compass Project. <laughs> right.
1: Okay, sure. Go ahead.
2: If I must, yeah. I mean, if you look at those indicators across the board, so many of them rely on census data. Sometimes for for the indicator itself, sometimes just to be able to create a percentage, so we know it. You know how. Prevalent that that um, indicator is, or the the measure is, in the community. I think, you know, just looking at all the community organizations that have used, and you can probably speak to this this more recently than I, uh, Jacob. But um, how different neighborhood groups and different nonprofits use uh, the data to understand their communities and to understand how how people are faring.
3: Yeah, exactly. I mean, even with local government, we expect our sort of city administrators to, and our town administrators to serve us well. We pay property taxes, which, you know, helps run the government, local government. But if they had no information about who lives in the communities that they are working for, um, we, (laughs) we would have a pretty dysfunctional city government. Um, and so census data and census derived products are super important. Um, You're totally right about Minnesota Compass. Researchers love this data to really help understand a problem that they're trying to get to the bottom of. Um, At Minnesota Compass, you know, one of the examples that, uh, one of the examples of the things that we track uh, is housing cost burden. How many people are paying too much for housing? We get that information from the census. Um, What are the poverty rates broken down by demographics? We get that information from the census. Um, there's just a wealth of information contained with the census um, and it is just vitally important that everyone uh, fill out that form when they get it
2: Can I just um, it just occurred to me Jacob when you were talking that um, a lot of the indicators that we collect data that that we use come from a survey called the American Community Survey, which used to be like the long form of the census. I just wanted to point out that even those additional long surveys that the Census Bureau does relies on the decennial census, which is what we're talking about more today, right? Just the decennial count, because they have to be calibrated every 10 years to make sure that they are accurate. Um, so there's a very close tie between those data sources. So I just wanted to, to point that out. Thank so you. as,
0: as you're mentioning that, let me just bring up something that's been in the news as a an issue, a controversial issue. Some people say, has, hasn't has the Census Bureau overextended itself? And, you know, what it asked in the census and the American Community Survey, uh, Constitution just says count everybody every 10 years. Census does more than that, and the American Community Survey certainly does far more than that. Um, what you know? What is the justification for spending all that that money on those data collection activities?
2: Yeah. So the Census Bureau just in the last two years or so went through question by question and outlined how each of the questions were used in a piece of federal legislation. So there is a reason (laughs) to collect every piece of information that program that it's tied to, or, or in many cases programs, could not function the way it does if not for the decennial census or the other surveys, the the American Community Survey and others um, that are collecting that data. So while it has um, expanded since its original purpose of just redist- of distributing political power, um, today it has many other functions that are tied to federal law and federal programs. So
0: pretty much anybody who's touched by a federal policy or a federal program has a vested interest in a good count and information gathering from the census, and everybody touched by a program or policy is pretty much everybody, so,
3: okay. (laughs)
2: That's right.
3: (laughs) Uh, That that sounds important. And I would say that, um, you know, this uh, accurate census is also uh, very important to just the economy in general. Businesses love using uh, this source of information to just better understand their markets and their workforce um, and they use this data uh, to figure out where they want to site, say, a new retail location or um, a headquarters or a manufacturing facility. Um, so a lot of business intelligence also drives from census products. And you can imagine that that pretty much drives our economy too.
0: Sure. Yeah. See, we were talking earlier about the way that the census is conducted and the emphasis is online are there concerns about internet access online administration computer literacy uh, hacking into information any any of those things should we be watching out for those uh so so in terms of
2: Uh, whether people will be able to answer online. Uh, The Census Bureau knows that that there are people who don't use the internet and there are places that the internet uh, doesn't reach well. (laughs) And so everyone will eventually... Um, after subsequent mailings receive a paper form. So while they might get that first invitation that we were talking about earlier to go online, eventually if they don't respond and go online, they'll get a paper form. So that's one thing that the whole US can fill it out on paper if they want to. (laughs) There's also a phone line this time around, and so you can call in and give your answers by phone. Um, so I think you know, while that's, that's something that I think a lot of people are thinking about, what happens if I don't have Internet access, uh, just rest assured that there are other options. Uh, they just might need to wait uh, another week or two until that paper form shows up in the mailbox.
0: Any of us have other concerns about online administration?
2: I think they're out there. Absolutely, mm-hmm. I hear that. I mean, that's that's a concern of, of many community members that I hear. Um, they're concerned about whether the system itself will be able to manage the load of all 331 million of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not that many will go online, but so many people going online in such a short period of time what could go wrong, right? So <laughs> so there are those concerns out there. Um, people are concerned about, and, and I share the concerns about misinformation and disinformation, because we're kind of living in a time where we expect that that, uh, that information is weaponized, and that we may uh, hear things that are not true, and it may be intentional, it may be unintentional, but I think that um, misinformation is really um, something that, Stands to hurt the accuracy um, of the count and, and the quality of the data.
0: So, consider a typical person in the United States. If they want to help make sure that the census count is as accurate as possible, what can they do?
3: I would say, you know, talk to your neighbors, talk to their extended families their friends about the upcoming decennial census. It doesn't have to be a long conversation. It just has to remind them that it's coming, that it's in the mail, that, that they can go online and fill out the survey really quickly. Or if they are not necessarily computer literate like my extended family, uh, we can help them fill it up if they need that.
1: For me, I think it's really about how do we help people understand that taking part of the census is a civic responsibility, right? So if we want... <clears throat> excuse me, all the rights and all the freedoms that comes with being an American, we do have some bare minimum civic responsibilities that we have to give back. One of them is answering the census so that we can help our government really um, provide us the best service possible. Another thing for Indian country that I wanted to make sure to, to mention is, um, you know, really I see that as how, how can tribes grow their capacity to use this census to really um, beef up their systems to track their population. Um, you know, it's one of those things that, Quite honestly, if the United States Census Bureau wanted the most accurate data that exists for tribal citizens, how many people we have, they would go to the tribal enrollment office and ask. Um, uh, Indian country is unique in that with so much of our our systems and what we do and how we exist tied up through the federal government, we generally have really stringent and strict enrollment criteria. Um for instance, in our tribe, I have to bring in a birth certificate when I want to enroll my child. Um, I recently lost both my parents, so death certificates, all that stuff goes to our, our tribal enrollment departments. And so, so you have a variety of ways for measuring yeah. the members of the tribe. Yep, and I think on, on just about any given day, um, if the tribe is willing to share that information, you can call them up and ask how many citizens are in your nation. Um and, you know, I have no doubt in my mind that I could call home to the Cheyenne River Sioux tribe and call our tribal enrollment office and ask how many citizens do we have? Some of the other tribes like ours track age. So I could literally call home right now and ask how many 18 year olds do we have in our tribe? Huh. And we have that we have that data in house, right? And so um it's one of those those interesting di- interesting dichotomies in when it comes to Indian country because you do have the United States Census Bureau very much saying um that When it comes to citizenship and enrollment, that is a tribal function. It's a sovereign nation. You get to say who's a member of your nation. Um, But when they're trying to count in the census who's native and who's not, it's a self-reported function, right? And so literally, I go through the form, I can check American Indian, Alaska Native, I can't remember the proper terms, that may have changed now. And then now for this year, they've also um, added where I can actually check mark which tribe I belong to, right? And so, But that's all self-reported. And so it, it can be inflated. It could be lowered based on how people report what they are on the census. Sure.
0: Yeah. Susan, thoughts? If a person wants to help make sure that the census count is as accurate as possible, what can they do?
2: I'd say think about who you are connected to and who you already have trusting relationships with, um, particularly for groups that we know are going to be undercounted. Those are the groups that I would encourage folks to reach out to. And if they want to host a table that allows people to um, fill out the census and, you know, if they're part of an organization, that's, that's a great idea, too.
0: Are there groups out there, advocacy groups working uh, in communities that we could identify that people could look up on the, the web maybe and get in touch with?
2: There are. On our website uh, for for the state of Minnesota, it's mn.gov slash 2020 census. We've got a map that shows all of the complete count committees that have formed in Minnesota. There are over 250 right now, uh, and they're spread across the state. Many of them are governments, but many of them are tribes. Many of them are nonprofit organizations. Um and so you know that's that's something we encourage people to do too is get involved with those volunteer complete count committees.
0: Those committees, groups,
1: Wayne or Jacob, any yeah, groups th- you would mention? Yeah. I think the state of Minnesota has done a tremendous job. They've formed um some really unique partnerships with the Minnesota Census Mobilization Partnership. And so in that um group, the Native Governance Center, the organization I, I work for, um we are part of the Tribal Nations Native Communities Hub. And what the state of Minnesota has done is they've been very intentional about historically undercounted communities and how can we make sure we're getting resources out to those communities so that we can have the most accurate count. And I'm really proud to say that our organization is, is a participant in that and that we're trying to help coalesce resource and get it distributed out to tribes. Um, so that we can get this most accurate count as possible. Um, I know the Minnesota Council for Nonprofits is one of those hub partners, and so I believe that information is on the website too. So it's, it's, it's really uh, um, a great feat, I think, that the state of Minnesota is taking the time, the resource to invest in this because they know the importance of it.
2: Yeah, we appreciate that uh, help from the legislature, but also just the the community groups and advocacy groups and individuals and organizations really have stepped up this time to kind of help us out and and be a part.
1: Yeah, that's really great to hear. Really unique, um, especially with the 11 tribes in Minnesota and how they've all come together now, have designated their own tribal staff. So you have... um, Tribal liaison partnerships and and people that are hired through the U.S. Census Bureau that come on and work with tribal uh, tribal uh, nations, but every tribe in Minnesota now has their own tribal census coordinator that is leading the efforts on reservation and off reservation to ensure that we're getting these accurate counts. So, a lot of mobilization.
0: Well, it is great to hear about all the energy uh, out there and the opportunities for people to assist. And I suppose that even after the April twenty twenty census. Motivating people to participate in American community surveys and other important data gathering efforts is 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 vital as well, and all these efforts will help uh, help that to support uh, to support those other data collection efforts. We have reached the end of our time, so thanks again to our guests, Wayne Ducheneau, Susan Brower, thank you, and Jacob Wascalis. thank you. Please visit our website, www.wilderresearch.org, for more information on today's topic. State demographer Susan Brower also mentioned another website (laughs) useful for the census, mn.gov slash 2020 census, for more information. If you have suggestions for a future podcast, please let us know. I'm Paul Matesic from Wilder Research, and I look forward to talking through the numbers with you on other topics.